Hello, Logic friends. Glenn Teal here, the host of episode 37 with producer Ashley Seymour. It was awesome hearing Ashley's backstory. I found out she's pretty much done every role in production and post from working in CG, motion graphics, editing reality TV. She even had a small stint where she was doing interviews for promos. She got to interview Javier Bardem and Daniel Craig and many others. And I think her willingness to work in different departments has made her a really well-rounded producer. I know you all will enjoy this episode. And now, a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by AJA, together with Flame since 2006. We would like to welcome to the Logic family our friends at Hotspring. Hotspring is the future of VFX outsourcing. Hotspring connects you to great artists to get your projects done, making it easier than ever to access the best talent around the world. I highly encourage, if you need any help with roto, paint, cleanup, or 3D match move, give the folks at Hotspring a shout. You will not be disappointed. www.thehotspring.com Ashley, welcome to the Logic Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Glenn, for having me. Very excited to have you here. So I start these with very flame-specific kind of nerd tech questions, but you being a producer, I want to ask you, are there any pieces of software that you use daily or that you need to get your job done? It changes depending on the studio I work for, which I hate to say, but yeah, because of that, I definitely utilize a lot as of right now. The one thing animation and VFX related that I cannot live without anymore is F-Track. Oh, we yeah. have kind of merged away from shot grid or shotgun if you're old school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, frame store where I'm at, it's still shotgun. It's not shot grid yet. So. That makes me happy. I feel like everyone's like, oh, it's shot grid, Ashley. I'm like, is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it hasn't earned its stripes yet with that name. So. Totally. So how is F-Track compared to shot grid? Yeah, so for me, F-Track is a little bit more like if Adobe made Shotgun. Oh, okay. All right. So like more user-friendly? Correct. It's more user-friendly. I could train my underlings to use it without a lot of oversight. And then I can, it, it's very asset-friendly if you're just creating folders within folders. So it's like a very layered structure for breaking things down. It's a little different in posting that something's either ready for review can't really, you, you have to set it up in a specific way to be able to do that. And then you could talk to like F-Track reps and they could set it up for you. But yeah, just, just to make something on my own and not needing an entire IT team to, you know, set it up for entire VFX artists. Yeah. I, I That's why I like F-Track a little more. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Awesome. And it's, it's tied into everything, Nuke, whatever they're working it on. It can be. Yeah. So it can be tied to Nuke, Flame, even Maya. That's what a couple of the vendors I work with, they used it that way. We actually just go straight F-Track reviews straight from the vendor and comment on that. That's cool. Let's rewind a little bit. How did you get started into post-production? Oh my goodness. You want like a TLDR story or like from the very beginning? Let's go from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> So it's I wanted to be an animator, as a lot of people my age, I feel like, did if they were into art. For some reason, Pixar was in everyone's head at the time. So I went into, I, I knew I wanted to go to art school, which was a shame because my parents put me in private high school, which was a waste of money. Because I'm like, <laughs> oh, going to like these crazy schools. And I'm like, I'm going to study art while you guys yeah. go to, you know, study to be doctors and lawyers. I, I got into Miami International University of Art and Design and 
my initial major was animation. It's basic computer animation. And then I was talking to my advisor at the time and she's like, everything you seem interested in is like not just animation. I feel like you should take more classes to learn more, more like applications and programs. Cause in animation as a major at the time in like the you know early 2010s, it was just Maya and 3ds max. Like that's all you were learning. Whereas if you did the, if you switched to a VFX major, you learned everything under the sun, you learned nuke, you learned all of the, the Adobe suite. And it was, I was like, I feel like I'll get more bang for my very expensive art school buck <laughs> to, to <laughs> learn all of that. So I switched majors and it turned out to be great, but I never actually even got into what I wanted to be, which once I switched, I wanted to be a compositor. I was like, I want to oh, learn. Wow. How to, yeah. I wanted to be a 3d compositor, you know, avatar came out and I was like, I want to do like 3d compositing and get yeah. into Nuke. And I didn't know Flame existed at the time. All I knew was Nuke. Okay. And just like Foundry applications that existed in like 2010. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, so slowly but surely, we, we all started to try to get internships at different places around town. I grew up in Miami. And one of the hotspots was MTV Latin America. Oh, and wow. They were, okay. Yeah, they yeah. were only accepting internships for production and not for anyone in motion graphics or anything. So I was like, Screw it. That's a foot in the door. But the rest is history. I was annoyingly organized to the point where they were like, how did Ashley do it? Oh, also, she knows After Effects. Get her to do the Chirons and Lower Thirds. And Oh, so, nice. so you're doing everything. I was doing a little bit of everything. And then the the wonderful producer, who was also like a script writer for a lot of the reality shows that we worked on, because yes, reality shows are fake. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> So yeah, surprise, surprise, if you're listening, it's like, that's, that's, that's all. We basically did the Hispanic or, or Latinx version of 16 and Pregnant. We did like, get on me baby and all that stuff, which means like, I want my baby. And <laughs> it was fun times. This was for like US market or all over? It was all of Latin America. Yeah. So it was all of like Brazil, Argentina, oh, okay. Central America as well. So like Mexico, Salvador, all those places. So that's where MTV LATAM existed. You could buy it in the US. Like you could have it back in the day if it was on your cable network. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that was fun times. But long story short there, the producer that promoted me from intern to a production assistant, she abruptly quit. And the show that I was helping her work on didn't have a line producer. And they just like, they didn't have any other person that spoke Spanish, knew how to set up the graphics and also write in Spanish. So they just like made me a producer then and there and oh my, gave okay. me a little bit of a raise. So I was definitely cheap for them at the time. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right. I just got to get started somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, this, this is fine with me. I'm working on Miami Beach. <laughs> I can yeah. see the water my window and I'm in an edit suite, you know, 12 hours a day. That's great. I, I'm yeah. fine with <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Nice. Okay. So you got started at MTV. And then how did you get to LA after that? Ooh, that's the fun story. So before LA, I actually was in New York. Oh, wait. Okay, I did know this. I don't know why I forgot this, but yes. Okay, so you went to New York first. All right. Yeah, I went to New York and it was my first stint at a VFX house because I still wanted to be around VFX. Like I was getting really tired of like reality TV and like music videos and broadcast network in general. Okay. I kind of had a feeling I was already going down like i was like i feel like netflix because netflix was a thing at the time but not as not with original content just yet but i was just like i feel like this is heading somewhere and i think broadcast is dying like <laughs> i already had that inclination and i was like i still want to do vfx work and i worked at the mill for a hot second it was a good year it was a very good year were you a producer 
Yeah, it was it was a pitch producer, so I I would help build up a deck with creative directors to like get work in. Oh, and then yeah. I would kick off and a line producer. To, and sometimes we would have to make like three D like three D tests and things for for certain clients, so they know that we're able to do it. I remember one time, I don't know why my EP at the time probably like thought that was weird. They didn't know I knew three D, right? And so I was. If I remember correctly, I was set up to help produce a deck for this this client that was trying to showcase how their water filtration system worked. Yeah. And we had to build their propeller looking thing, but we couldn't find a modeler because it was like a weekend job. So like I think Gosh. we got the we got the pitch request on Thursday, Friday, and we had to deliver by Monday. Or Monday or Tuesday. So it was like a very quick turnaround to get like anybody in the office. And then so I, I went in on a Saturday and I took a shot and I was like, eh, it's just cylinders and like, you know, expanding it, extruding it, whatever. And so I did something like that for then our creative director to animate because I, I, I cannot say I'm a good animator. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, okay. Modeler, yes, but yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> I was like, it was basic shapes. I was like, I could build this in an afternoon and whatever. So I did that. Yeah. He ended up using it and animating it. Obviously, he, he like adjusted it a little because I think I made it way too big and it was just a lot of memory for one, one oh, scene. <laughs> okay, okay, gotcha. Um, yep. My scaling wasn't accurate, but he used that as the base model and like that kept, kept going. We didn't get the pitch, but they were very impressed. And I was, and then my EP's like, oh, I didn't know you knew 3D. I'm like, yeah, just you know, use me. And he's like, okay. <laughs> okay, so in that, so in that moment, were you still thinking, hey, maybe I want to pursue this as a career, like 3D or compositing? Or at that point, you were set on being a producer? I think at that point, I wanted to see if I was worthy enough, which is why I was doing these weird little tests here and there for myself. Yeah. But I think in the long run, what I and this could be me being self-deprecating, which I usually am, but I feel like I kept meeting so many more talented people in that space that I'm like, I, re- I grew up now with the understanding of like, I'd rather protect that talent and be the be the producer oh. that now producers are, which is like the one that protects the artist as opposed to working them to the ground. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So what made you move on from the mill? And I'm sure it was a good training ground, you know? Yeah, I actually, I, I got a job with my old boss from MTV, actually. We worked at, um, if you remember, it kind of failed, I think. I don't think it's a, it's a channel anymore, but it's called Fusion Network. And there was a no. show called okay. Drug Wars. And I was an editor for that. Oh, wow. That was like back to what we were talking about. Like, did I have any inclination to be an artist or anything? That was like my, maybe I should try it out and see if I like it. So I went to Miami to be an editor on a reality show, to be honest. But holy crap, so much footage to go through. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. I've been there. I I was going the edit path as well. And then I shifted over to finishing. (laughs) Best thing you could have ever done. Right. But like every every editor I meet, they love it, right? And I'm like, I do not have that passion for editing in general. Like I, I love Avid though. Like I, I wouldn't use anything else. I use I use oh, Premiere yeah, before on TV, but I'm an yeah. Avid user. And but even then, it was just like ugh, managing all those bins. And then we had editor assistants. But like the one we got for that show was kind of like a little flaky. So okay. <laughs> So maybe not breaking down the dailies like you yeah. like it. Yeah. Okay. Breaking, I have to break down the dailies and then I have to like set up the story. And we had a senior editor who would actually like perfect it because I wasn't there yet, obviously. Oh, okay. Um, Can we talk? Because I'm not too familiar with that process. So you would essentially go through all the dailies, cut it together, but then a senior editor would look it over and then make adjustments after. Is that how it yes. kind of worked? Okay. Yeah. So I would read the script, see where 
what footage from which days would like make sense for it and start building that just like very rough cuts in the timeline and then have like been for like, hey, here's where Here's where I pulled from for like close-ups, for background shots, for establishing shots, all that jazz. And then drone footage was annoying for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I forgot why I hated the drone footage. I think it was because like the matching the resolution, I think they shot at different frame rates as well. And I always had to go back and fix that. God, yeah. (laughs) I remember probably at that point, Avid, you'd have to set up certain projects at a frame rate. For your yeah. preps. Oh, yeah. It was a pain in the butt. Yeah. Okay. I remember having to export it at a different one. And when I brought it back, it still looked, it had like a way to go through it. And at the time, I was like, I don't know how to fix this. Yeah. Without going into Because I remember you and I would fix that kind of stuff in Flame. Yes. But, yeah. Like frame rates things or time warps or whatever the heck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Time warps. Yep. Oh, yeah. So, like, I, we, we were not budgeted for Flame Warps. Okay. So, I'm curious. So, you guys would cut in Avid. Would it just finish straight out of Avid? Or would you go to an online editor? I think Fusion had an online editor waiting for us to deliver the episode. Okay. So maybe they yeah. use like Symphony like, or something like that. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think they use something like that. So after this show, you decided no more editing. Let's, yeah. Was it get back to producing or? It was figure out what the hell the next step was. Because I remember just being so frustrated with just like thinking that editing was my thing and then realizing, I don't think I like this every day. You know, it's so funny. I went through that same thing. I I was dead set on being an editor. And then after assisting for years, and then even editing with clients in the room on commercials, you know, say the editor was too busy, you got to sit with them. And I was just like, this is not actually what I want to be doing. <laughs> you know, going like 30 versions into something, then, hey, let's go back to V1 and start all over. Yeah, no. I God bless your soul. I. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I think... I think if you're the type of person who likes editing is is you really fall in love with the process of it, right? It's like figuring things out almost mathematically, but then also once you get everything laid out in that regard, it's then that's when you can get creative, right? Exactly. But yep. it's the pre it's the pre-work that I was just like, oh, this is so time consuming. Yes. And also just, maybe also because I had bad systems where like things kept crashing and I was just like, where's IT? Oh, we don't have an IT. So we got oh, gosh, to figure yeah. things out for myself. But okay. Okay. So how long were you in Miami after that? <laughs> also, yeah, like about a year. And then I started visiting my old intern, actually, because he was technically my intern, even though we're like just a couple years apart at MTV. He moved to LA. Oh, and okay. he actually went to UM, by the way. He, he went there for film. But he was in Los Angeles and he got a job at DreamWorks Animation. Nice. Wow. Yeah. And he was he was a PA at the time, and he's like, "Come to LA, come visit me, and see if you like it here." Nice. And I was after that, like, Drug Wars was done. I was unemployed after that. They were in Greenland for another season yet at the time. Okay. And so, I remember visiting him in Los Angeles, and remember because I only went there like once or twice before when I was in like my teenage years with family kind of vacations. Yeah. yeah. Fell in love with it. The second I walked out of that plane, I was just like. Oh my God. Yes. The foggy air. This is amazing. I thought that was such a no way. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. And then I pulled it similarly to how I moved to New York. I really didn't tell my parents. I just like, Hey, I'm going on vacation. By the way, I'm staying here. I did something similar. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, hold on. So on that trip, you just stayed? I stayed there for, I think a couple, a few weeks. And then back to Miami just for like, you know, 
couldn't stay there long and, and mooch off of my friend's couch anymore. Yeah, okay. But I was slowly applying to places in Los Angeles, like hoping something would stick, but nothing did. But then I don't know. Honestly, looking back, I don't know how the hell was this ballsy. I I just moved being unemployed. Like my, my friend was like, just be my roommate. We could split the rent and just show up. You'll have a better chance of finding a job if you're actually here and so get true. to the daily. And I was like, screw it. I'm, I'm, I'm coming over. Nice. <laughs> so that week I signed the lease and I'm like, all right, I guess I have a bedroom here now. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Uh, that was fun. That was a great first Ikea trip too. It was my first time in Ikea and I was like, ooh, I like this. Did you go to the Burbank one? Yeah. That, yeah. That's we, yeah. <laughs> we, we stayed in Burbank right on near Verdugo. Okay. Okay, cool. That's yeah. great. And then so shortly after, were you, I can't remember, did you start at Technicolor right after that? Or was were you at a no. couple of companies prior? I, dude, I was technically unemployed for like a whole year before Technicolor. Oh, no way. Yeah, I, I was doing odd jobs around town. I don't know if you knew this, but when I was at MTV, I would do a lot of junkets on the side. No. Yeah, so I was, I was on camera for a bit doing just like film junkets, like just PR tours. And I would interview the cast and crew or the director, depending on what kind of promotion it was. And it was basically doing like EPK footage for yeah. the MTV shows I was working on. Because there was a show that I was assigned to called Top 20. It would run down the top 20 music videos of that week. But then between, it was like little new segments of like pop culture. And then one of them would be like, oh, what movies are coming out this week? So I would just go, I'm interviewing Daniel Craig because he just came out with Skyfall. And here you go. And it was in Spanish. So I had to interview. Well, he didn't speak Spanish, but like Javier Bardem, I have an interview with him in Spanish. I was what? <laughs> That's amazing. I, Ashley, I had no idea. I you thought you that. knew it. No, no, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah, no, no clue. That's cool. So yeah, so I was doing that on the side. That was only like barely like a hundred bucks a day. Okay. okay. <laughs> it doesn't and, pay if you see anyone doing like those kinds of junkets or interviews, they pay zero. Like they pay nothing. Wow, dang. Okay. And, and what, they like book you for a day? And that's it? And then the, some yeah. other crew does the editing and whatnot? Yeah, correct. And then so when I didn't have an outlet anymore. I schmooze with the people who actually set up the junkets, like the crew that like set up the cameras and the audio and the memory cards that they give off to the interviewers oh, yes. their yeah. outlet. Yeah. So instead of being on camera, I switched to the people setting up the interviews. And then that was also maybe like a 150 day job because it was like PA work. It was just being a runner essentially on set. So I did a lot of that that year. I, I even was on a set for AOL, which at the time I was like, AOL is a thing. I know. I'm um, <laughs> Yeah, I think they still are. And I'm like, wait, how is this possible? <laughs> it was a fun time where basically I just had to, A, entertain a child who's supposed to, like, throw a ball at mommy's head. And uh, oh, then okay. turn back <laughs> to something about, like, oh, yeah, AOL is here for your family or something. I don't know. Okay. Okay. And then the really attractive actor would come in and be like, oh, yeah, and I'm here for your family, too. And it was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So you were you were actually on set for a shoot wrangling. <laughs> wrangling children and trying to throw the ball at the woman's face because obviously the child had really bad aim. And I still couldn't hit her either. They're like, oh, hey, can you try it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then it's like, action. I throw the ball. I miss her freaking head. And they're like, really? And I'm like, I don't. I'm here. <laughs> Do I look physical to you? No, I don't do any physical activity. I'm behind the desk. Right, right. <laughs> You're like, can you get one of the grips over here to throw this that played baseball like 20 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> I actually think it was the grip that like went over. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so that was a year of kind of on-set work, doing on some interview, work. doing some crewing, and then you went and do back to kind of producing, right? Yes. Yeah, so Technicolor and yeah, I, I was interviewing at a few different places at the time. I inter- and it all happened like within the same month, which I thought was very interesting. So I interviewed for Disney first as a VFX coordinator, and it was supposed to be specific to that Wrinkle in Time movie oh, that yeah. now circling back, I'm glad I didn't get that role. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> that movie did, did not seem like it was a healthy production. And then it was Technicolor. I just interviewed, I don't know if you remember Dunia, I just interviewed yeah. her. And then I think there was, I was trying to get back into Fox because also right before Technicolor, I worked over the summer on the first season of Orville. Oh, oh wow. And I was a VFX coordinator for them. I think Orville did all the grade at Technicolor. Yeah, they did. Sparkle. Which I think is why they found my resume interesting is because like I already worked on at least one of the things within the Technicolor roof being worked yeah. on. So yeah, That's I knew cool. what was that what was the name of our internal like footage library oh, that we had? God, what the heck was that thing? Oh, this Honestly, I can't remember, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, so I already knew how to upload and download things from there. Okay. So that's where they were like, oh, we could use you. Which, by the way, when I started working at Technicolor, I never touched it. Pulse. Really? Pulse. That's right. Yes. Yes. You never used Pulse. Really? No, I never used Pulse, which I thought that was so ironic. Even in your VFX producing days at Technicolor, never used it. No. I think it's because I was put on to shows with Netflix and they weren't using the Pulse system. Oh, yeah. They had their own internal... Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I do remember because, yeah, you were working on Netflix for a bit. Was it like a year at Technicolor? I can't remember how long you were on that. So I was at Technicolor for almost three years. Three years. But was it two years of VFX producing or was it like a year? It was, I think it was like a year and a half each side. So marketing, marketing with you first for like a year and a half and Rob and yes. I shift. <laughs> yes. And then I finally requested like, hey, doing trailers is great, but there's a VFX group. Upstairs. Right. Like, yeah. I know. We definitely missed you when you left, but I felt like your your career kind of took off once you moved into the VFX producing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I actually, I, like, technically I'm still doing trailers. If you think about it. I'm doing cinematics for Riot right now. So it's still kind of within the realm of both now. It's like I'm mixing both sides of the coin, but yeah, to Technicolor's VFX group was just it was it was finally the the mixed mixed bag that I always wanted, which was like I'm working with creatives and understanding everything because of what I studied in college. Mm-hmm. So that was really fun. And then also I'm still a producer and I understand these programs that they're working on. So if there's any issues or people getting rubbed the wrong way, like I had I feel like I had a good sense of how to handle things. Okay. Okay. That's great. You know, it's funny because, you know, I was at Technicolor for a few years and I knew of the Technicolor VFX department, but I mostly just knew of the compositors there. Did we actually have like a whole 3D pipeline and whatnot? We, we had a whole like CG team. Okay. Um, you see, I don't know if I ever met them or if I did, I just didn't know <laughs> they were in CG. That's amazing. I honestly didn't know until I was up there either. Like I okay. had, and, and I keep saying up there, people are who listen will not know what I'm talking about. So VFX, if I remember correctly, was on the fourth floor. 
Or we were on the fourth oh, floor. Oh, yeah, we were on the fourth floor. Yeah, you guys were on the fifth, I think. Fifth, yeah. yeah. I think up, it's like going to the next level. Right, right. And then six was like the way higher ups. That was like the CEO up there. Yeah. So the sixth floor is actually where the CG team was. And oh, there- oh, so they were hanging out with the, the higher ups. <laughs> That's what we met when we were back in, you know, marketing trailers. Like we're the lowly people that should not. I know. I think I, I went to the sixth floor once for a pre-pro meeting. That was the only time I ever went, like, was grace with the, you know, going up to the sixth floor. <laughs> I know. And they had the best posters, too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you went up there and just crushed it. And then I can't remember. Did you leave for Netflix after that? or? So Netflix, did you work? I, I'm glad I could say this now because I don't think I could have during Time to Color. But I was working, not only was I working on Netflix trailers via Technicolor. I also had a side gig with Netflix as a part-time VFX reader. <laughs> so I was, I was doing two jobs at the same time. Okay, I, whoa, I never knew that. I know, I kind of hit it because I didn't know if it was like, like it wasn't like a non-compete contract or anything, but I was just like, I feel like this isn't something I should be doing, but I needed the Yeah, cash. but it was also different because I'm assuming it wasn't for a trailer. It was actually for shows or... Movie, it was actually right? for, for yeah for a series and films. Okay, so that was really fun. Rob knew about it, and he was like, "I'm not going to tell anyone." <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Rob sent me your doc for his film that you did the breakdown, and I was like blown away. I mean, it was so detailed, and I don't think I've ever seen a proper visual effects kind of bid like that, like broken down per shot and then different approaches. And so, how did you learn that? Honestly, just like accumulation of all my 10 years like it was, okay yeah yeah <laughs> and it's also watching a lot of behind the scenes as well i have this i have this interesting thing where actually i don't like a lot of bts work when it's a lot about the actors and yeah certain, no certain I, i'm right there with you just show me like the inner workings of the vfx or even just production like the craziness that happens yeah yeah, yeah. like i saw a lot of those types of people on instagram as well but before that got heavy in like, you know, social media was like YouTube videos. I, I never liked it when like, you know, directors and or actors were like talking about this, uh, themselves or anything. It was always like, okay, what is the soup up to? What is the, what is the lighting soup doing for this shot? How did he get that particular? I don't know. It was, it was more me digging into like what made certain effects. Like there are even moments where like I would see effects breakdowns and I was like, I could have sworn that was real. And, I, and I'm, I claim to be a VFX producer. I'm like, I couldn't even tell that was green screen. I know. And that's what worked me out. And I'm like, nope, I got to get better at this. So I start looking at that and diving into a huge rabbit hole of just random footage and breakdowns of even people on LinkedIn that post their reels. I'm like, oh shit, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Good for you, <laughs> no, it's I, so true. Yeah, we're, we're on that fine line of, I mean, everything now looks so good. It's, it's, it's hard to tell. You know, <laughs> and it's getting crazy that it's almost like at the palm of your hand to be able to do that as a like you don't really need these. I mean, now everything's like a monthly subscription, like yeah, Adobe or even Maya or I think oh every no honestly everything, everything. is. I don't think there's one piece of so- VFX software that you yeah I'm pretty sure everything's subscription yeah, yeah so everything. I remember having to pay like almost twelve hundred dollars just to install Maya. Like oh yeah. For sure. No, I mean, it's still price. I think Maya is like 300 bucks a month. Or, no, no, it's probably, I think it's like 150 a month. But yeah, it's it's approachable now. Like you could just do it for the month. If you're booked, you don't have to plop down, yeah, 1200 bucks. And <laughs> I mean, 
and also kids are like teaching themselves now. Like I'm, I'm pretty impressed what comes out of, you know, kids straight out of school and all the, all the stuff they can do. I was like, holy crap, this looks like, like my old stuff looks like it didn't paint, like Microsoft paint. Like, <laughs> God, it's so awesome. I know. Yeah. I mean, today there's so many tutorials and I think more people do go to school for it as well. And I'm sure the te- the professors are getting better as well yeah. as time passes yeah. and whatnot, but and professors are becoming like people like you that they, they're still in the industry, but they're doing like, you know, teaching yes. side gig. Totally. So totally. It keeps it fresh, I think. Yep. For sure. For sure. So are there any tricks, especially because I'm just so in, you know, I've bid projects in the past, but sometimes it's like, you know, throwing a dart at the wall. You're like, well, I think if everything goes to plan, it'll be this way. Are there any tricks that you use when you're bidding out shot? Honestly, asking for opinions from creative directors okay. there's definitely yeah it's not really a trick i think my own personal trick is like what would i do to save money that's my own personal trick like i'm always trying to save studios or clients money and that sometimes either makes me the good guy to some people and then just annoying to everybody else okay uh, so curious <laughs> can we dive into that i'm just curious when you because i i did see your breakdown for rob's film and i remember seeing it's like okay if we go this direction it'll probably cost x amount if we go this direction it'll be this amount and you kind of gave like three different variations on costs and i was like wow that's really that's a good idea but let's go dive into who gets annoyed if you do that <laughs> Usually Rob. So like, okay. Okay. The directors, the directors would be like, till this day, if I'm in a room, I'm going through pre-production right now for a cinematic trailer. And right now we're going through script ideation. We already have a beat sheet and the beat sheet was very lengthy. And I warned them. I'm like, this needs to be 90 seconds. We don't have two minutes. This is already going over just beat by beat in my mind of how we've done this before. And we also have like, lightning strikes and one of our characters has fur sim and i'm like we don't need fur on that character can then we switch oh. him out for like a humanoid i i would always ask the question is this necessary for the story to make sense or okay. and necessary for the emotion or can it be easily swapped and yes. that, that's where i usually start so like for example in rob's script he had like water sim turning into like i don't know a ninja star type of shape and i'm like <laughs> yeah, right why, right why does the holy water need to be simulated like why <laughs> what do you need to showcase in this scene right now like what's going on yeah for sure okay okay that's usually how it would go about it okay interesting now do you run into that with any like vfx studios that you've worked with where they're like oh well maybe we should go this this direction to get x amount or or do you feel like most studios try to take more of the easy route and go? I think the mill was the only place where they were like, yeah, spend more. Because they were, <laughs> they yeah. knew they were working with people like, you know, Coca-Cola and Snickers. You know, the main halftime show commercials that you would see. And okay. they would spend, you know, like three million bucks on that. But yeah, it, I think if I give two options to like an investor and a creative director they would normally go for the cheaper route either way because they know that'll save money for something else down the line. Sure. There's always padding that you have to definitely plan ahead for, either for live date pushes or, you know, maybe the CG team, you know, this actually happened before when COVID was a thing. We lost quite a few people oh, in the production. Okay. So I don't mean like they passed away. Please don't think that. No, but they definitely had to take at least like a week off. Mm-hmm. So we definitely lost a lot of time. And the padding that I had, I was... I think one of the ways I get away with things like that, I lie to my team. I'm like, yeah, this is due June 6th. 
No, it's due, due June 13th. We're fine. Oh, <laughs> really? Just to, okay. So that's like your internal padding. Yeah, it's my internal padding. And then I always shave off like a good, depending on the type of project, like a good few grand off the top chunk. We almost always use it later on, whether it's like unforeseen circumstances, like, oh, we have to make a map painting because we didn't realize that in this shot, you'd actually see the background here or something like that. Is there kind of an industry standard when you're bidding how much to add on top? You know, for instances like, oh, crap, we do need a map painting for this. Or, <laughs> you know, is there like an industry standard at most of these companies where it's like, well, it's going to cost this to make a profit, but we then add a percentage or. I don't, I don't think there's an industry standard, but I think if a good producer would set that up already. Uh-huh. Okay. Let me, let me put it this way. Not even a good producer. Cause I think, I think every producer that's up at this level, fantastic in their own right. But I think a seasoned producer would understand that that is necessary. <laughs> a lot of the time our budgets come from like, you know, even above us, right? We got a chunk and we map that chunk out ourselves depending on what's needed within. So for example, it's like, I could be told one day like, hey, you have 600 grand for, for a cinematic, which is actually not that much. Some, oh, wow. Okay. That seems like a lot, but. <laughs> most, most game companies or like large cinematics in general to promote anything at a high level, like a AAA level, they would do like, the rule of thumb is a million dollars a minute for something good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the fact that we're doing two minutes at like five, like 600 K is in my opinion, I, I think we could do better. But so <laughs> I, I could be told like you got 600 grand off the top right there. I shave off a hundred for biz dev. You need biz dev artists, especially for animation. You don't really need them. VFX is a completely different world. I'm talking more animation now uh, since that's kind of where I'm at currently. Yeah, no, no, totally. No, this is good. We're getting into that. Cause I was, I did want to talk about the differences between, I guess your more traditional film and episodic VFX compared to game cinematics. So it is tricky because at least for me right now, I'm getting spoiled because now I'm the client. I oh, right. Yeah, that's right. You're you're at Riot. So yeah, you're the client. <laughs> I'm the client. And now it's like, <laughs> I have to be, I have to be pleased in my throne check. <laughs> right. um, I, I, do, <laughs> I do miss being the on-call under sometimes, but... Why? Some- okay. Yeah, I want to go into this because I haven't met too many people that have gone client side. So I, I'm interested to hear the differences between being a vendor and client and then also that... <laughs> So yeah, when you're the vendor, if you're already like a go-to for a lot of companies, you're pretty fine. Uh, you could charge a pretty decent amount to keep your team healthy. Okay. There will always be weekend work and long days. Whereas being the client, I could protect at least my internal team from doing that and also pad my schedules with how we, cause how we used to work actually is something I take pride in that I, I bettered, I think overall for vendors coming in. I'm working for, I'm not going to say who right now, but I'm working for a very specific game within Riot. Okay, yeah, yeah. Historically, vendors did not want to work with us anymore because we would give really short turnaround time, barely any money. <laughs> and Really? It was an up-and-coming game at the time when I started. So it wasn't as popular as like League. Like I'll, I'll just say it right now. It's not League. Yeah, League of Legends. Yeah, okay. It's League not Legends. that. So, <laughs> Which is just uh, massive. I mean... <laughs> Jeez, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It took me a while to realize how big League was. I remember it in college, but I didn't I didn't realize that it's just like all over the world. And people, like Worlds itself, we have the Worlds event every year. And the amount of people that actually take that to heart like a religion and just, you know, 
put all their all their year round war towards that is impressive to me. I wouldn't say I'm a hard I'm a gamer, but I'm not a hardcore gamer. You will not see me on Twitch or anything recording myself. But I respect what people can do. Right. But yeah, so the vendors that I tried to keep on were slowly like saying no to us, you know, as opposed to the other way around. And I'm like, this isn't this is interesting. Oh, weird. Okay. And I was just thrown into this group for this game, and I was like, this is not okay. Let me let me talk to some folk. And me and the CD at the time, we were going through the list of different vendors we can go to for our animation pipeline specifically. Because we're like, hey, we want to stop using in-game models. We wanted to go actual like CG of high fidelity. Oh, wow. Okay. So not Apex models, but just like Maya. Just better looking to a certain style that we want to differentiate ourselves in. And so we did like a wonderful R&D process. We tested Five different vendors landed on one. And I made sure that they wanted to work with us as well and actually have it like a mutual thing. The same way League has been, if you remember Arcane, they have Fortiche now. They're a French company. I wanted to make this vendor our Fortiche. (laughs) Oh, cool. Um, Wow. I definitely put in a lot of effort to try to pad up the, uh, the budget that we had for each of these videos, but also make sure we had them on almost retainer for confirmed videos, so we wouldn't have to be chasing down different oh folks. I mean, yeah. that's smart because all the assets are at their company, and that yeah, it's not like oh great, we got to get this element over to this shop or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So now okay. we have a whole library of assets that we can pull from and repeat to save money down the line. So that's really fun. I'm I, I'm glad that that worked out. <laughs> yeah, these are the same thing. Yeah, so it, they were on retainer for about two years. We did great work with them, oh. built a lot of stuff with them, and they've been great partners so far. And they they say the same. So it's like, okay, that's a complete 180 from the previous people who are like, yeah, actually we can do... I had one vendor that bailed on us a Friday before a Monday start. No. <laughs> like, well, that's not cool. Was it a competitor's project or was it still within Riot, but just a different game? No, it was a competitor project and it was like their first, their first try at a feature film. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. It was a film that didn't do that great. It got a lot of weird backlash. Okay, okay, gotcha. Well, you know, I'm curious. So do you find that game budgets are bigger than, say, your traditional film VFX budget? Oh, gosh, that's so... It really depends. I mean, it depends on the project, true. Game VFX, if you're talking about, like, the product development side, that's different. But for, like, trailers, things... I'm not even going to talk about Arcane. I know people are curious about that. But... Arcane was like a whole like six year endeavor. And if I have this correct, the actual owners of Riot or the found, the co-founders of Riot, they actually put their own personal money into it that reached, I don't even want to know how many hundreds of millions just to get it like where it was. Oh, enough. wow. Okay. So I'm not going to compare that, but when it comes to like cinematics and stuff, no, film will always be a little more than that. VFX is always super expensive for film, but like our animations, I'm actually... Originally, I was actually really impressed on how much we spend on animation, at least when it comes to like the high tier games. Like I think League go up to, depending on which ones you are referring to, they could go up to three mil, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I remember we even had, we had discussions of like even going higher than that. But then we have cheap ones that are like 250, like 250 grand. Uh, so okay. depends what the style is, depends how long vendors. <laughs> yeah. I know historically blur is really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. They do some amazing work. But yes, I'm sure they're very expensive. 
Blur, Axis, they're incredible to work with. It's just, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. There is a price point there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have the cachet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's where that's when you really do need the million dollar a minute rule. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. Okay, so are you liking producing within more cinematics and very heavy CG and all of that? Because I, I assume a Technicolor it was a little different. It was more of your two point five D kind of producing, right? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, if you remember, yeah, the Technicolor trailers also in Technicolor we weren't part of like the whole creative process other than like. No let's change that color or that font or that lettering could be, you know, current a little more. I don't know. Yeah. Like that's, that's the extent of it. We weren't part of the whole creative campaign that set it up that way. We just got all the materials True. to put it together and finish it off. So that's the one thing I do like about cinematics is like, I'm part of the process from, you know, brief to pre-production planning and during all the creative initial writing phases, making sure we have, the right viz dev peep for the type of project we're doing. I think that's what I really like so far as I got to reach out to, I guess, people that reminded me of me when I was younger. It's like, oh, you actually are an illustrator and you you know how to break down characters. And uh, it's annoying how much talent is out there that are, I guess, still searching for jobs like this. I've met so many people. We've had so many interns that I'm like, if I could, I would hire each and every one of them. We... We definitely get a lot of people who are like flex contractors and they come and go, but it's also like once they're gone, you're like, we could also use you all the time, but we just, we don't have the work available for it. Do you have any advice for up and coming producers within either typical VFX producing or game cinematics? Protect your artists. (laughs) Okay, that's good. Yeah. If you, if you could start familiarizing yourself with the people who are not producers, okay, that's your toolkit. You know, it's like as a producer, yeah, you can learn all the crazy ways to organize your productions, whether it's F-Track, Shotgun. Now we're using Airtable and Miro boards and all that smart sheet, all that wonderful jazz. That could be easily learned. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> Those are more the technicalities. Yeah. <laughs> what you can't learn is how to interact with your peers if you don't know them, right? So I have learned a lot just listening to my writers, my directors, oh, my cool. editors, my gameplay capture artists, like (laughs) just hearing them out and understanding what they need to do their job well, that'll make you a better producer. And that'll get you into more familiar ground to also kind of cross-reference into other types of production. If you're just getting into the industry, take any internship you can. (laughs) Yeah. Even if it's not something that you're passionate about, just take it. You'll learn more on the job than you ever will, at least as a producer, in my humble opinion, like from school. If you want to, for art and being an editor, hell yeah, school, tell me all those programs. But yeah, for, for people management, which is really what a producer is, is people in budgeting management. It's really just getting yourself out there and like being familiar with as many different types of production as you can. Yeah, which I think you did. I mean, going through your backstory, I mean, we have like CG, we have some compositing, editing. So it seems like you kind of had the whole works and I'm assuming that helped your producing too. Just yeah, being in I, the, the artist seat for a little bit. Exactly. So I know what I would hate hearing a producer tell me. And then I know how I can be more receptive to like certain to-do lists or or, or feedback. Because there's nothing worse than a producer who has no idea what your job is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's like, hey, I need this by tomorrow. It's like, are you? No. Like, do you have any idea how much the work this would be? (laughs) Like, Exactly. That's a kind of content or content. That's the kind of 
knowledge you need and it really helps out especially with like we talked about for padding padding for time padding exactly and so are are you still kind of now being on the client side you're not probably really doing a lot of bids right they kind of allocate a certain amount of money and they're like ashley this is what we have so get it done <laughs> yeah so it's an interesting interesting dynamic going on right now because we yeah we get a chunk of money and it's like here's your chunk of money we need two or three videos, right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll circle back and be like, for what you were telling me and the initial concepts you were making, like this cannot do two videos. This could be one, unless we cut down either timeline or not timeline, I, I should say like total runtime, the, the amount of asset creations, like we're not gonna do like 12 different, you know, character modeling and animation for each one. It's like, what do you want? What is priority? But yeah, I think it's, it's not really bidding, but ironically, it's bidding with the vendor. Like, is this all right for the budget? Where are you seeing the red flags that I'm not seeing? There's only so much I could guesstimate a script would be. Mm-hmm. I still need our CG vendor, animation animation vendor to like double check that and tell me, actually, we didn't think about that these two shots or whatever are actually going to be a lot of background animation because these characters are doing something. Oh, That's right. Okay. About. Like things like that that I I may not catch at first beat sheet glance is where I want them to kind of call me out on. It also comes down to what artists are available in that vendor at that time slot, you know, because they're bidding against or, or, or they're being pitched from other places as well. So sometimes if we don't have a retainer, which is why I made one in the first place, <laughs> we can get outbid by a different place. Like, oh, yeah, Riot is offering them half a mil. It's like, okay, well, screw you. EA is offering us like... Oh, 1.2. No. Okay. <laughs> so okay, gotcha. We're gonna go with the EA project. So I try to get ahead of that. <laughs> For sure. Now, do you guys have anybody internal within Riot that does cinematics or is it all outside vendors? For Riot, it's mostly outside vendors. We don't have and well, we do have a CG team, they're very small and they're mostly for product. We're not like I think but I didn't. I haven't worked at Blizzard before, but through the grapevine and also just through understanding how their pipe works, they do have a, an internal CG team. Okay. That is ridiculously talented, and well, they're now Microsoft. So, so they do a lot of okay internal. They're not going to a Blur Studios to do cinematics. I think they might for smaller pieces, but like the big main Kahuna's, they do it in house. Okay. Gotcha. Do you have any up and coming projects you're excited about, be it in Riot or outside of Riot? Ooh, not that I could talk about. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure everything's NDA'd within Riot. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do you freelance on the side? Like, I know you're helping Rob with like some breakdowns, but do you do any like VFX producing on the side or? No, I not lately. I did do something last year that was pretty funny. I was a production (laughs) consultant for an influencer who's on YouTube. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. She, she's one of those people that has like, like millions of subscribers and she was having a lot of trouble with like the editors she was hiring and uh, basically drowning her team out doing a lot of fixes with, cause she was editing a lot of stuff herself, but she obviously needs to be on camera and she didn't have time for that. And I actually, I, I got contacted by her manager. Okay. How did that come about? <laughs> That's a and once again, this is this is crazy, and I never thought that would happen, but it makes total sense. Like these influencers have teams, yeah, that are cutting these videos. Like I, I don't know. I'm just not on any social media, so I am so out of the loop with this stuff. So I'm only on 
Instagram I, and YouTube, I refused TikTok until I could fathom. I know we're going to start using TikTok at work, so I have to get into it eventually. Yeah. But until I'm forced to, because it's paying for me, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to hold, hold off. But yeah, so it actually all started through LinkedIn. I actually got a lot of, I got a lot of stuff through LinkedIn. I don't think it's utilized as much as people should. Like, okay. yeah, people should definitely use it more often. Yeah. I, I got contacted. I was very intrigued because I'm like, you need a consultant, not an actual production manager. That's interesting. I haven't done that before. And it worked out. Cool. I basically, yeah, I was only for a few months and I was talking to basically everyone on the team, making sure I knew who everyone was, what they did. It was, I think the, the crux of the issue was like, they're all kids in college who are doing this on the side. Okay. So I tried to come at it like, I would have done if I was in that mindset as well. Nice, and it was basically okay. just making a, a better schedule instead of, they were they were using Slack, which we use at Riot Games too. But yeah, they were using Slack to see like, hey, who's available to edit something? And I'm like, that, first of all, everyone's going to try to, you know, ignore those types of messages. It's, it was more setting up actual like schedules with these folk and making sure that like, okay, kind of like a hospital, like, hey, between four and six, you're, you're going to be available between this time, uh, but basically okay. being on call, but specific hours that you will be on call. It was a very strange world, that influencer world, because like you, I was like, I always had a feeling like these people have managers and PR agents, but I didn't know to what extent. And it's like, yeah, every video that you think is made by them alone because all the graphics are <laughs> shitty or right, right. <laughs> it looks like everything's done in their bedroom, that's all produced. Like, it's, right, right, exactly. There's teams that do that. It, it's like the whole, we even got feedback where it's like, Hey, these, I remember when I was proposing certain graphics to be upgraded because graphics were shitty. That's the whole point. Like we had people comment saying, Hey, why do her graphics look so much better? Like, has she sold out, you know? And it's like, Oh, oh so you don't want pretty graphics. Sorry. I'm, you know, I'm not used to that. Anymore, so. Well, yeah. So I have to make it shitty. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. Well, I'm just thinking too, like, wait until VFX get into the, the influencer world at some point it'll happen. I'm sure it already has. I just don't know. So <laughs> I'm already worried about like deep fakes. Like they, some of them really get oh, to me. Oh, it's crazy. Yes. Yes. It it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's, that's the next level. The machine learning kind of AI techniques to, you know, reproduce stuff that wasn't there. Yeah. That, that's the next wave of VFX. That kind of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that kind of software being like so untouchable. I remember being at SIGGRAPH one year when I was like, I think I was like 19 and they were going over the Benjamin Button breakdown. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of Brad Pitt's face. And, and I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe they were able to fix his face like that. And it was like dots all over his face. As we yeah. all know, it was like basic B now. Right, but right. Then we get all the, these like, just fast forward, just like a couple years later, we have AR and it's yeah, I know deep fit. Okay, so what we did with Benjamin Button, we could have done in like five minutes now. It just goes so quick. Yeah, because it's like they're training millions of images, and they have these catalogs, and yeah, you could just swap faces out, and it's all real time tracking. It's it's nuts. It's totally nuts. I don't know what's going to happen to Illustrator is when AI is actually approved. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Exactly. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Ashley, for, for coming on the show. It was so good catching up and hearing your backstory. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, yeah. this was fun. <laughs> yeah, nice. All right. Well, we'll we'll catch up soon. Hell yeah. Okay. All right. Bye. See you later. 
This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by AJA, together with Flame since 2006. We would like to welcome to the Logic family our friends at Hotspring. Hotspring is the future of VFX outsourcing. Hotspring connects you to great artists to get your projects done, making it easier than ever to access the best talent around the world. I highly encourage, if you need any help with roto, paint, cleanup, or 3D match move, give the folks at Hotspring a shout. You will not be disappointed. www.thehotspring.com See you next time.